I'm the first cancer survivor in history to climb to the top of Mount Everest. As a 13-year-old, doctors gave me three months to live. Going in for a checkup for the first cancer, they found a second cancer. You know, I wasn't done. I had my whole life ahead of me. I didn't want it to be over yet. I'm cured of cancer, but I'm not done fighting it. And I'm going to continue fighting it just to give people hope and let them see what's possible. I'm still alive, so that means I haven't fulfilled my life's purpose. Well, I've completed uh, the highest mountain on every continent, and I've trekked to the bottom of the Earth, the South Pole. My first thought was, now what do I do? So getting to the North Pole kind of reminded me of going through and, and, and being placed in remission because I thought, this is great, but what next? You can go to literally the ends of the earth to give people hope. Sean, an absolute honor to have you here on the Modern Warrior podcast. And what a warrior you have proven to be in in your years and your adventures and all of the challenges and difficulties you've overcome. Going right back to where you were diagnosed with cancer at 13 years of age and then again at 16 years of age and given three months to live at one point and here you are having conquered all the highest peaks of the world, having conquered many more challenges aside from that, which we'll, we will dive into in this conversation. But can you bring us back, first of all, to your 13-year-old self when you heard of this news of being diagnosed with cancer? What was going through your head at that time? And and how did your life change from that that point forward? You know, I, I appreciate that. You've, you've done your done your research. So it's it's interesting when you're 13 years old, I would say the normal person, yeah, you're in eighth grade, what we call it here, I'm sure over there, you probably call it grade eight, same thing. You know, you're getting ready for school. You're worried about being popular. You're worried about the latest hairstyles, the nicest clothes, the nicest shoes, being where you're, where you're going to sit at lunchtime, you know, what tailor you're going to sit at lunchtime. And that's the normal worry that most people have when they're, they're on the cusp of their teen years. And for me, it was a little different. I was faced with a, a mortal decision, essentially. I mean, I, I remember initially being diagnosed and my parents didn't off the bat tell me that it was cancer. And I think that really helped a lot. They told me, hey, Sean, you're sick. You have a condition. And we're going to do everything we can to help you out with it. Uh, and oh, by the way, it's cancer. Whereas I think most people, they're they're diagnosed like, hey, you know, hypothetically, let's say, Gavin, you you have cancer. You were the blah 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 blah. You tune out. You're done. You're gone. Because as soon as you hear that c word, you're thinking, oh my god, it's a death sentence. Holy shit, I'm 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 gone. But if you turn it around and look at it from a different perspective and build it up that way, you know, it's, it's completely different. But I, I do remember being 60, 70 pounds overweight, bald from head to toe, three months into the treatment, looking at myself in the bathroom mirror and not even recognizing who I was. You know, there was nothing left, no hope, no fight, no drive, no nothing. You know, I, I, I felt like a, a 70 pound troll who should be underneath the bridge somewhere because I was an athlete. I was uh, competitive. I loved fighting for, for 
uh, for what I needed in life and, and uh, clawing my way to the top and having the the records and swimming and it, that none of that was left. And then there's, there's a 60, 70 pound overweight mass in the shower pulling chunks of hair out of the drain so the water could go down, cry, cry my eyeballs out. Boss. How did you begin to turn that around? You know, I, I, great question. I think it, 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 it started turning around in that same moment when I was 60 pounds overweight on my hands and knees on the shower floor. You know, the water was rising up because my hair was clogging the drain and I kept scooping chunks of it out. And I realized that I had one of two choices. I could either fight for my life or give up and die. You know, those are the only two choices I had. And then I started projecting into the future, what if I did die? And looking at, at what I truly value in my life and still, you know, one of my personal core values is family. And I was thinking what my parents' lives would look like if they lost their firstborn son. How, how, how they'd be torn apart. And I, 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 just, I couldn't do that to them. I had to fight. And then I realized that at that same time, I didn't want to focus on not dying. I wanted to focus on living. You know, having the perspective of going after what I wanted, not the avoidance of what I didn't want. And I figured that out at 13 years old. I mean, you know, perfect example, you're walking down the street, you're telling yourself, don't trip, don't trip. And what's going to happen? You're going to fall on your face. But if, it, if you turn around and say, stand tall, walk strong. So I, I didn't focus on not dying. I focused on living because of one of my personal core values, which is my family. I couldn't leave them. For a long time of that, you were in an induced coma though, weren't you? The second time. The second time. You mentioned earlier, I was given three months to live. Yeah, the second time I was given 14 days to live. So what happened at that point? I mean, you've overcome cancer the first time at 13. You're now two or three years later to come back and it's hit you even harder. Ah, absolutely. Absolutely. Like, all I wanted to do was was go back to school. I, I can't believe I say that out loud, but you know, as a eighth grader, freshman in high school, I was probably the only kid who wanted to be in school as opposed to the hospital. I was sick and tired of the hospital. And then I was placed in remission. All I wanted to do was be normal. And it, my friends were out chasing girls, collecting baseball cards, going out on dates. Their hormones were kicking in, growing hair in unusual places on their bodies. <laughs> And I was losing my hair. I was losing everything. And then I was in remission for a year, going in for a checkup for the first cancer. They found a second cancer that was completely unrelated to the first one. And, and that one came with a prognosis of roughly 6%. Bearing in mind, this is the type of cancer that affects three out of a million people. And no one's ever had Hodgkin's and Askin's sarcoma before. The chances of me surviving both of those illnesses is roughly the same as winning the lottery four times in a row with the same numbers. What do you think? So, so I mean, what do you think differentiated you from from the rest in terms of surviving this incredible battle? You know, I, I I don't think it's just one thing. I think it's a combination of so many things. It's it's like the perfect storm coming together for a, a good cause. So I think it was a 
combination of modern medicine, family support, prayer, or just an inner will to to move forward with my life. You know, I wasn't done. I was 13, the first cancer, 16, 17, the second cancer. I had my whole life ahead of me. I didn't want to, I didn't want it to be over yet, but I, I had so many things I wanted to accomplish. I mean, I remember laying in the hospital bed, a man of the cloth comes in and starts reading me my last rites. I'm like, I'm not dead yet. I look at my mom because the hospital wanted me to write out a living will. You know, I, I have a brother who's three years younger than me and jokingly, I look to her, I was like, well, what does a hospital want? Isn't my brother going to get my hand-me-downs anyhow? Like, <laughs> they possibly take. So many people around you almost expected you to die, but you refused that expectation within yourself. Was, do you think that was the huge difference for yourself in terms of denying death in order to continue living? I, I think so. I think a lot of people did expect me to die. The hospital wanted to put me in hospice. They said it's over, but I, I wanted to continue. And I think it, be, it began with a mindset. You know, one one of my favorite quotes is by Nelson Mandela, and it's, it always seems impossible until it's done. And I, I, I'm a huge believer in the mind-body connection. And, and a lot of people don't utilize vivid visualization. And I did that back when I was 17. And I for the first cancer and the second cancer, I literally fought the tumors in the cancer cells from within my own body, visualizing myself flying around in a little microscopic spaceship, destroying the cancers and, and firing lasers and bombs and, and cannons and everything else laden with chemotherapy and drugs, you know, taking it down from the inside out. But I, th- I think it it really did help to develop a, a mental prowess, a mental attitude and fortitude and the right mindset to literally keep moving forward. It's, it's very similar to going up, up a, a mountain or running uphill. It never gets easy, but it gets easier. You've obviously established that mindset as you have progressed towards other challenges in your life. I, absolutely. You know, I, what I've learned earlier in my life going through the cancers has helped me even now, going up the mountains, and even now accomplishing what initially people thought was physiologically impossible, which I'm sure we'll get to, climbing Everest. Mm-hmm. Yes. And that that brings us to the next next question of becoming the first ever cancer survivor to reach the peak of Everest. And you've gone through two cancer battles and you have got your life back into your into your 20s. What at that point drove you on to accomplish these incredible feats in your life, Everest being one of them? Was it that you felt like you've had a second chance at life and you wanted to squeeze as much juice as possible out of it? Or was there something more there that, that drove you to the top of those mountains? In, in a short, short answer, yes. I think it was proving to myself that, hey, I'm still alive. Cancer is not a death sentence. But I wanted to utilize the highest platform in the world to scream hope, to give people something to look look up to. Because there's so many people in the world who need to see something is possible before they do it. I need to believe it's possible and then make it happen. So I want other people 
to realize that you can really do some amazing things if you believe you can. You know, whether, whether you think you can or you can't, you're absolutely right. And I want people to believe in themselves. I want them to, to find their own passion and purpose and, and go after their own mountains and climb their own Everest. I mean, not, not everyone's going to climb Everest, but we all have a, an Everest to climb. Yeah, but I, I literally wanted to use the platform of Mount Everest to give back initially to the cancer community and give them something I never had when I was going through it numerous times, which is hope. What age were you when you reached the peak of Everest? 27. 27. So you had the majority of your 20s cancer-free and quite healthy, and you obviously had to build up a lot of fitness and strength and endurance to, to hit that peak. And at any point, did you feel like the cancer was going to creep up and and get you again because it had done the second time? Did, was that was that a massive fear throughout the your twenties? You know, for the longest time, that's a great question. For the longest time, it was a fear because no one's ever had these two cancers before. I'm I'm. For the rest of my life, I'm going to be in constant remission. I go in once a year for a checkup, even now. And I get the blood work back. The doctors say, you know, everything looks good. And I celebrate. I'm like, yes, you know, I have another year to live. <laughs> it's a new lease on life. I have another 360 days. And for the longest time, it caused so much fear going in for that checkup. But then I realize, why am I allowing a six-letter word to control my emotions? Who's the one in charge here? Me or the cancer? And you know, so kind of tongue-in-cheek, I didn't say, I would say that uh, I had cancer. You know, cancer didn't have me. Yeah, so you retain the power. Absolutely, because as soon as you relinquish your power to something else, and you say, or you allow for me, the cancer to control my emotions and my feelings and to have that quote unquote trigger to make me feel anxious, I'm no longer in control. Some inanimate object is. So I, I, I brought that control back and I realized it's, it's me who, who should be in charge. And what did it finally feel like when you reached the peak of Everest? Was it something similar to conquering cancer or was it a whole different set of emotions? It, it, it was very similar in the aspect of being placed in remission. You have to go back and relive your life. You, know, you, have, to, you have to build it back up again. And very similar to reaching the summit of Everest, I looked around and I thought to myself, I'm only halfway. Like I have to, I have to get back down. <laughs> so when I was when I was placed in remission, that's only halfway. I had to go back out to the real world and build myself back up again. So when I got to the top, I was ecstatic. the The biggest thing I, I think that helped me reach the top was understanding it was never about the summit. Yes, that's the goal. But I spent a month and a half trying to reach the top, de developing different base camps, getting my or different camps, getting my body used to the altitude, and about 20 minutes on top. So I learned more about myself in the process than I did at the goal. And I also realized that it's never about the summit because there are going to be other mountains to climb. So 
it, it, it basically goes down to what it represented and the meaning behind it. The entire time I was climbing, I actually had a flag that had names of people touched by cancer folded up in my chest pocket close to my heart, always reminded me of my goal and my inspiration, other people touched by cancer. So when I reached the summit, I unfurled the flag and wrapped it around the top of the world. You know, and, and that is, is like an homage, it's a dedication to everyone who's ever been touched by the disease. So I wasn't up there by myself. I, I had, you know, thousands and thousands, if not millions of people pushing and pulling me up to the top. This obviously inspired you to climb more mountains. You didn't, you didn't stop at Everest. So was this a plan before you climbed Everest or did this plan transpire after you reached the summit, summit of Everest? The the rest of the seven summits, so the six other peaks, didn't come about until I came off of Everest. And it was a, probably a few months later when, you know, as, as time goes by, you, you slowly forget the bad moments and the bad times and the hardships, and you remember all the good stuff. A few months after coming home, I started forgetting about how cold it was, how difficult it was, how miserable it was sometimes, what it's like not showering for a month and a half. And I started remembering how much I love being in the uh, in the mountains, in nature. And that's when I decided, okay, well, let's go after the other six and do the same thing, taking a flag to the top of each one of those mountains. What differentiated between Everest and the other peaks? You've, you've conquered the highest peak in the world. What drove you to do the other six? I mean, you've you've conquered one of man's greatest feats so what was the hunger then to continue with six more peaks in the world well you know kind of focusing on one word you mentioned there i conquered the world's highest peak in all honesty i don't think anyone ever really conquers the mountain because if if it's you versus mother nature she is going to kick your ass every single time i don't care who you are you are never going to be able to conquer the, the mountain. You're never going to be able to conquer Mother Nature. So I've always thought and looked at it as not conquering the mountain, but conquering myself. And it's like I said before, it's 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 more of a a lesson going up these mountains. And when you get to the top, it's it's what it represents to you and the meaning behind it. So looking at the other six peaks, I wanted to use that again because there are so many people on every continent touched by cancer everywhere i went i visited local hospitals and shared my survivorship story with the patients and i got some inspiration from them because if, if they're continuing to fight through what they're fighting through i can suffer and, and be miserable on the side of a mountain in nature for a while you know getting my inspiration from them so there are people on every continent touched by cancer i wanted to reach around the world to give back some hope and inspiration to others and you've also written the book keep climbing and within that book you've got some strategies to help people conquer their own metaphorical mountains in life can you share some of those strategies with us without giving it all away of course because we want to yeah. sell a few books here <laughs> you know the, the first book was called keep climbing um, the second one, which is the most recent, that's uh, Conquering Your Everest. And that takes people through the journeys that I went on, through the cancer and in, in Mount Everest, 
but it focuses on really utilizing vivid visualization and helping people understand the deeper purpose for their their actions you know, and and helping them tap into their personal core values because once you have well let me let me ask you this what what if you could discover your innermost motivators so that you could achieve your outermost desires and goals nothing's going to stop you exactly so once you're doing it for a deep and purposeful reason for you everybody's different you know completely from a non-judgmental standpoint but once you find those those innermost motivators your personal core values and the the reasons behind your goals nothing's going to stop you you're absolutely right so is there some strategies you can share well I actually put together, I couldn't find it online. So I developed my own personal or core values assessment to help people discover their personal core values. So just if, if you want to just write down five to 10 things that you really value most family, um, health, wealth, uh, freedom, appreciation, anything like that. You know, there, there are tons of different values out there. Just write down the five or 10 that matter most to you and start making mindful decisions based on that. You know, but also when you wake up in the morning, don't grab your phone, don't turn on the media, don't turn on the news because it's it's what ninety nine point nine 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 percent negative. Yeah, in, in the first fifteen minutes of your day, you can choose how you want your day to go, and then at night, write down five things you're grateful for, and journal about one of them. I'm most grateful for blank because blank. You will literally reprogram your brain to be more gracious and more be focused on gratitude. I'm with you on that one for sure. You have achieved incredible feats in terms of those mountains and the the seven highest peaks in the world. But what that has come a lot of various awards, such as the Cancer Survivors Hall of Fame. You're voted the eighth most inspirational person in history. Uh, American Lung Association Inspiration Award, Breckenridge Film Festival Award of Excellence, Cancer Survivors Hall of Fame. Mentioned that already. Eh? Climbing Magazine 2007 Golden Pitten Award. There's so many here. ESPN Never Give Up Award. Which one of those do you hold in highest regard for yourself? Yeah. You know, I would probably say just being a, being a survivor award. I, I have my own award, my own life. You know, that's that's good enough. And as far as being the, one of the top eight most inspirational people, I don't know who voted on that, but I'm pretty sure my mom was on the board. <laughs> <laughs> uh, don't discredit yourself, my man. No, no way. <laughs> so you've you've conquered all these challenges now. You've gone through so many different battles in your life. What's next? Well, I recently got married. I heard that's pretty difficult. <laughs> <laughs> that's the toughest mountain you'll ever climb. That's for sure. Yeah. You know, it's it's once you reach the top of a peak, reach down and pull other people up. So that that's what I'm trying to do now. And and I have never, I've never made it to the top of any significant peak by myself. 
And even if I have, yay, I get up there, self-high five. You did a great job. Big deal. You have no one to celebrate it with. You know, the sun's coming up and you can see the curvature of the earth because you're so high. Grab someone to share it with. You know, that, then that's what I'm doing now. I'm, I'm trying to surround myself with like-minded individuals who want to push the envelope. You know, I want to pull people up. I want to lift others. At the same time, have them lift me. You know, let's, let's just keep going higher. So I, I, every year I take a group up Kilimanjaro. We do it as a fundraiser for a cancer charity. And the concept behind it is uh, we pay for a survivor's trip. Anyone can go on the trip. But we always pay for a survivor's trip, and then it's the responsibility of that survivor to raise funds for next year's survivor. So kind of a cool model. And it's really, it's really interesting seeing and hearing them connect. You know, the survivor who came off the mountain is going up next year. Um, the Big Hill Challenge, which is a three-week mental wellness challenge. I'm uh, going, uh, a friend of mine just signed me up. I just thought of this because I'm in the middle of training for it. Signed me up two weeks ago for a 100-mile bike ride. And I use friend in, in that term loosely now. <laughs> uh, I'm riding across the United States in a race called Ram, Race Across America. So a 3,000-mile bike race. What is that? 5K, 5,000K. Um, and then I might be going back up Everest Base Camp in 2025 without supplemental oxygen, just to see if it's possible. Okay. Still pushing the boundaries? You know, I'm, I'm going to continue pushing the boundaries because I was on a... I was on a plane not too long ago and I was sitting next to a guy and we were talking about your purpose in life. And I asked him, have you filled your life's purpose? And he was sitting there thinking about it for a while. And I looked at him and followed up with another question. Are you still alive? How do you respond to that? We just kind of looked at each other. He's like, yeah, I'm still alive. So that means I haven't fulfilled my life's purpose. Mm-hmm. That's a journey. Absolutely. And like, like I said, so many people are focused on the end result, the goal of the, the, the finish line. I don't know anybody who's, who's in a race to be six feet underground. I mean, that's, that's the ultimate finish line for everybody on earth. Uh, is enjoy the process, enjoy the journey. And throughout all these accomplishments and victories that you've had, what's been some of your greatest failures in that process? Greatest failures. I would say the biggest one is waiting too long to build a business out of what I've done. Because if, if you look at the quote-unquote normal person's life, you know, they go to high school, they go, as you call it, university, college, whatever. They graduate, get married, have kids, work their way up the food chain, work, 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 and then they go on vacation and retire. I kind of flipped that on its head where I went on all these expeditions and journeys and adventures, and I recently got married, you know, 15 years, 20 years after most of my friends. Maybe I finally slowed down so we could catch up to me. But now I'm looking at monetizing what I've done, and I, I've, I've waited so long to do that. And I've, I've also thought that I could do it all myself. 
when I know how to lead, I know how to put together a team, and that's what I'm doing now. So that way, I've, I've, my biggest, I would say, failure that I'm learning now, and I wouldn't call it a failure because I've, I've, I'm changing it. But I waited too long to get the message out to help other people because I was afraid of what others would think of me. Because I've, I've had people tell me before, oh, look at this cancer survivor who's gallivanting around the world, you know, going on these, these trips and these, these um, vacations. Like, I don't know anybody who can hop on Travelocity.com and book a trip to the South Pole. You know, and it's it's not exactly in Condé Nast Travel Magazine for a vacation destination to go at 90 degree north. So I'm to the point now where I don't care. I'm going to keep going after what I want to go after. You, you did create a documentary there, or you, or you were part of a documentary there on Amazon Prime called True North. So that was, again, another incredible feat, and you could possibly see that as something that was monetized or business-like. Uh, what were some of the biggest challenges in terms of creating that documentary? Because now you've got cameras on you. Now you're under the the lens 24-7. Did that create a, a whole other set of challenges compared to climbing these mountains? Yeah, the biggest challenge it created, and, and I'm guessing like with any documentary, when you're watching the the quote unquote talent do his or her thing, and you're thinking this is a this is a beautiful documentary, the one we have, the True North, the Sean Swinter story, the the footage is unbelievable. It's beautiful. It's about my expedition to the North Pole, and somehow they managed to make eighty below look tolerable. It's it's unbelievable. But when you're watching any documentary, remember one when you're looking at the talent. There are people doing the same thing, but filming it. So they need to do a documentary on the documentarians. So the biggest thing that we had to work about, the, the, the biggest issue we had was dividing up all the camera gear as well as all the expedition gear, the extra batteries, the extra cameras, the extra lenses, the extra whatever it might be. So that was probably the biggest issue. And also knowing that and we we flew into um, Longyearbyen up in Svalbard, kind of over near you in a way, closer to you than me. There is no such thing as a three thousand mile long extension cord. You know, so we had we had we had to make sure everything was charged. We had to make use of every single day. We had to map out how much battery usage, how much memory we were going to use. So the logistics on that weren't just the expedition, it was the filming, it was keeping things warm. And then the biggest issue we had was my whiskey froze. <laughs> that's, I had, that's, that's I had a bottle of detrimental. <laughs> it was it was the first time I actually had to get hand warmers and wrap them around the bottle of whiskey to warm it up. <laughs> <laughs> No such thing as hot whiskeys up there. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So that that was a very different expeditions compared to your mountains, or was it? It it was, and this was also the first expedition we we took a firearm with us to protect us from potential polar bear attacks. And thankfully, we didn't have to use it, but we were being stalked by some polar bears. Hmm. More company for the for the trip. 
unwanted more more mouths to feed you know <laughs> <laughs> yeah and then how long did that expedition take and what were some of the personal challenges that you had to conquer that one it, it took about 10 days and a personal challenge in all honesty towards the end it got very boring because the the day one looked so much like day 10 and I kind of went inside and I started counting steps to see how many steps it would take for a mile. But the biggest issue I had was this was the culmination of the seven summits and the two poles, which is called the Explorer's Grand Slam. And I've been working on this for a decade. And I remember reaching the North Pole being super ecstatic because I had a flag at this point, it was probably six feet by four feet, had thousands and thousands of names on it and thousands and thousands of, of souls touched by cancer. Initially, I was elated, but not long after that, in all honesty, I became depressed. And it's, it, it might sound odd, but I've been working on this for how long? I finally accomplished it. And I thought to myself, well, now what do I do? You know, it was it was very similar to going through the cancers because there was night after night for years, I was terrified to close my eyes because I didn't know if I was going to wake up the next day. And then all of a sudden the doctor says, hey, Sean, you're in remission. Go live your life. My family was ecstatic. My friends were super happy. The, the doctors and nurses were happy. My first thought was, now what do I do? So getting to the North Pole kind of reminded me of going through and, and, and being placed in remission because I thought, this is great, but what next? What was next then? Well, I kind of going back to your initial question of, uh, what is next? And I was like jokingly, I was like, I just got married. I actually I proposed to my wife at the North Pole from a satellite phone. So that that was next. To conquer and a new challenge. Exactly, conquer <laughs> a new challenge. And I know every every woman does a you know dreams of being proposed to on a, a phone, right? From a guy thousands and thousands of miles away. One blowing into the phone, yeah, I can barely hear you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Tattering teeth. Blah, 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 blah. Um, this next was, I, I wanted to get home and thaw out. I, I really did. I, I just wanted to get home and regroup and, and figure out where I wanted to put my next step. Did that depression linger for some time? It, it did. I would say it lasted probably a, a couple months. You know, I was, I was in a deep, dark place where I just didn't, I didn't have the energy to crawl out. I didn't have the focus to crawl out. It was very difficult. Whilst you were in that depression, did you perceive it as something that would be temporary, something that you would eventually overcome? Or did you think, fuck, is this it now? I, I, I'd never, I never thought, fuck, this is it. <laughs> I thought there is some, some way out. And, and just like any situation I've been in with the chemotherapy, the medicine, I'd be vomiting 36 hours straight. I knew it was temporary. And I utilize what I learned going through the cancers with the visualization, projecting myself in the future. When I had bad situations, I removed myself from them. And the same thing happened here where 
I knew it was temporary. And I think it was also the first time I understood it was never about the end result. It was never about the goal. It was about the journey. And then looking back at it, I wish I would have enjoyed it more as opposed to being so fixated and focused on completion of the goal. So now when I take people up Kilimanjaro, it's never about the summit. It's about having a great time during the trip. And, and that's that's exactly what I'm trying to do in life now. I'm trying to enjoy every moment. When I woke, when I wake up every morning now, when my eyes, my when my eyelids open up and I see the world, the very first thing I tell myself literally is today's the best day ever. Yeah. Very powerful. And now you're at a point, I believe, where you're beginning to as as you're doing with the Kilimanjaro, but you're also doing a lot of keynote speaking. You're developing some courses as well to help people with their mental health. So you're beginning to give more away. Can you tell us about some of this work that you're doing at the moment to help others? Sure. I, I gave a presentation last week in, uh, in Chicago, and I received an email from a guy who was in the audience, and he was actually part of the event coordinators who brought all these people in. And it was interesting because in his email, he mentioned something about him listening to uh, so many people who get up on stage just to make a, a paycheck or to become more famous. And maybe they, they need their ego stroked a little bit more. And he said that there are so many other people who I'm looking at the email right now. He said that uh, so many people come from different walks of life and what works for one person may not work for another. That's why I, I, I speak about personal core values, passion, meaning, purpose, etc. It's different uh, when you're trying to empower others, right? So he mentioned how others who are speakers don't really have a heartfelt message behind their words. And it makes it very difficult for him because a lot of speakers often don't have a lot of heart behind their message. And he doesn't, they don't really take into consideration the unique circumstances that other people are born into. So it makes for him the, the speaker's presentation, words, message, or anything else they're trying to convey really extremely hard to digest. But he was telling me that the mantras and the story that I shared with them has really helped him replace a lot of self-doubt, self-defeating, and just ugly thoughts. So one of the things I'm trying to do is help others see in them what they may not see, but others do. You know, helping them develop that that self-confidence. And, and, it, and it helps by, it stems from them understanding what they value most, hence a focus on their personal core values. Goes right back to that. Absolutely. I think every decision should. And you've also got a a wellness course as well that you've got coming up to help people with their mental health. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's a three-week mental wellness challenge I developed based on what I've learned, but also the double the success rate I have on on Kilimanjaro, where the average mountain success rate is 48%. My groups are at 99% success rate. Wow. So it's, it's called the Big Hill Challenge. You can just go to thebighillchallenge.com. All the information's there. And I'll give you a code 
for anyone who's listening, you know, we'll, we'll knock half off one. Brilliant. Brilliant. Well, go and check that out in the show notes. And for everything else, Sean, in terms of where people can find you, follow the good work you do, where's best to get you at? That is hands down the easiest question to answer that you've asked so far. <laughs> I do like to I do like to ask some nice questions here. Yes, indeed. For more information, people can just go to SeanSwarner.com. Sean obviously spelled the proper way. And then Warner Brothers with an S on the front, SeanSwarner.com. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much, Sean. I'm incredibly inspired and fired up after this conversation with you. So I'm sure the audience feel the same. And I'm really looking forward to all the adventures you've got in the future and i will for sure continue your good work and continue to do to do your good work and inspire others to reach their mountain be it physically or metaphorically so thank you so much my man absolutely my pleasure gavin thank you